I'm so glad you've joined us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you. I want to serve you and empower you so you take better control and make better financial decisions in your life. Today, I'm going to address something that I've been asked more and more of late as people are questioning the value of a college education. Should I even do a 529 plan for my child or am I better off doing a straight investment account? We're going to talk about that. Also, the pharmacy industry is going through turmoil. So where are the places that are still giving people the best service overall? I'm going to concentrate on the positive, not so much the negative with that. We're going to talk about that. But I got new survey data that I can share with you. So it used to be a pretty linear question. People would be excited about having a new grandchild or a new child, particularly the parents with a new child. If they were not too sleepy to ask the question, would ask me about setting up a 529 plan for their kid's college. And the reason I say it's linear is they'd have the baby and then they'd ask me about the 529 and how to set it up and where they should do it and all that. Today, I've noticed such a shift in the questions I'm being asked where more and more parents and grandparents are saying, you know, I'm not sure I should do a 529 plan. You know, what if, what if my baby or my grandchild doesn't go to college? And there were so many families where I talk about the culture of college in a family, that historically there were families that, that I would ask, I say, in your family culture, do people go to college? And people would say, oh, yeah, or ah, maybe, maybe not. And that would help me answer that question. Well, today, even families with college cultures, they're not necessarily thinking, well, yeah, my kids are definitely going to college. And I have a high schooler, and I've talked to other parents of high schoolers, and that's part of the conversation now. You know, my oldest, my, uh, my uh, high schooler, my youngest, uh, wants to be a uh, professional pilot fly for one of the airlines or a uh, uh, private aviation company, uh, you know, one of the private jet companies. And he's getting his private pilot's license now in high school. And we've had just continual conversations about going to a traditional college that has a flight program or going straight to a flight program. And then the flight instructors all give their advice on it. And Grant's growing up in a family where, in my family culture, every single person went to college. Most even went on to grad school or professional school. And we're having these active conversations with Grant about, you know, for what he wants to do for a career, does he get just the uh, professional pilot credentials or does he also get a college degree? And he's He's going to get the college degree is what he's decided and do that. So uh, we have had multiple conversations with him about the military. And he's keeping an open mind about that as an alternative. And I would love it as a soldier myself if 
and we come from a family of talk about tradition, military tradition in my family. And so him becoming a military pilot before or after college seems like a great idea to, to me as well. And we'll see how that all plays out. But it's a different conversation than we would have had even five years ago in our family culture. It would have automatically been go to college. So this brings up this dilemma. What do you do instead if you're not sure your kid's going to go to college? Because the advantage of the 529 is overwhelming if your child goes to college. Let's say you got a two-year-old and you want to start putting money aside for college. Your child's going to enter college uh, 18, 19 years old. You've got 16, 17 years base of tax-free growth of the money you put in and then tax-free spending of all the money you put in and all the investment earnings that accounts had when used for college. It's a slam dunk if your kid's going to go to college as a way to defray some, much, or all the cost of college. Bam! It just makes perfect sense. But what happens if your kid doesn't go to college? Well, you better hope you have another baby who does want to go to college because you can transfer the money to them and it stays tax-free. But if you end up in a situation where nobody's going to use it for an eligible college expense, then you get hit really hard by the tax code. You get a 10% penalty on the earnings and you have to pay tax on it. So you get hurt badly. So what are the alternatives? There are two. One, you do a traditional investment account for your child. You put money into straight old index funds because the tax treatment's really favorable on those. And then once your kid starts working, hopefully uh, no child labor laws where you live and you get them working at about five or six years old. No, when your child's a teen and you get them working, you can then start moving money from that investment account up to what they've earned each year on a job. And then they got Roth money that from then forward will not be taxed. So it's pretty simple process, two-step process, but there will be embedded tax over the years. The other alternative is for you to look in the mirror and say, you know, I could probably use saving more money for my future. So you put money in a Roth IRA or put more money in a Roth IRA, even up to the max, because that money grows tax-free and it should be intended and used for your retirement, but you can take money from it later. The contributions, not the earnings, is the way to stay, keep this clean and easy and use that money towards your kid's college, and you had that money in there completely tax-free, spending tax-free, and that is the other alternative. And Krista, that's a lot for someone to absorb, isn't it? So you have some follow-up questions for me on this? I do. The first is from James in North Carolina. He says, my wife and I are expecting our first child in February. Congratulations. Congratulations. And among everything else on our minds, a college fund has now come up. I live in North Carolina and have looked at the 529 plans, but I've been putting money into I-bonds for over a year and have read that they are also tax-advantaged if used for my dependent's school. Which would you prefer? Would a rollover into a 529 be better when the bond rates go down more? So this is a question that's actually hard to answer because, yes, in certain situations, savings bonds are tax-free, 
There are income limitations to qualify for the tax-free status. The ownership requirements are very specific for that money to be tax-free. And over an 18-year period, you should uh, mathematically, statistically, historically earn more in investments in a, like a, a age-based portfolio in the 529 than you would earn in the I-bonds. I, even though the I-bonds can be used for that purpose, I prefer between those two, the 529 plan. And Steve in Wisconsin, you may have answered this, but he says, I often hear your advice regarding 529 plans, but wondered about the provisions within the Roth IRAs that allow for penalty-free withdrawals of contributions for a kid's education. On its face, this seems to be a more flexible approach to saving, as if the kids aren't college-bound, I won't lose any money invested. Of course, all of this is based on me having a solid retirement account to begin with, which I do, but what am I missing, or why wouldn't I withdraw... Roth contributions to pay for my children's education? Wonderful question. So the, you're dealing with a, a different wrinkle of the Roth IRA, that you're allowed to withdraw a certain amount of Roth money, even the earnings specifically used for college. I look at the Roth as a more flexible thing because over the years, you're going to put enough money in there likely that you can leave the earnings alone. And for any purpose, you can withdraw your contributions tax and penalty free. Why would you do a 529 instead of doing the Roth? And the wrinkle is, with a lot of 529 plans, depending on state law, and I don't know the state law in Wisconsin on this, but you are able in many of the state plans to get a state tax deduction for contributing to a 529 plan. So you get the tax-free growth and you get an upfront tax benefit from your state which makes the 529 plan superior but more limited than the Roth IRA. Because 529, again, has the one purpose to be used for eligible college expenses. The Roth serves many different purposes potentially in your life. And Julie in South Carolina says, I'm 57 years old, work full-time, and enjoy my career. I've been a single mother for 14 years, and my son graduates college this spring. I'm considering going back to school myself to get an MBA. Does this make financial sense? I'm interested in progressing my career, but I'm wondering if my age will deter this. I work in the technical field, and my current role is an individual contributor. I've managed teams in the past, but never seem to get past the middle management. Two years ago, I made the decision to go back to being an individual contributor to help strengthen my experience, and now I'm looking to expand again. Do you have any advice? Okay, this is fascinating, Julie, because depending on the culture where you work, simply enrolling in an MBA program by itself may earn you more status and potentially a promotion and better pay where you work just because you are now an MBA candidate. You don't have to complete the program before your employer at many employers will decide, huh, wow, this is somebody who's on the move. We need to really look at stepping up your career, Julie. So I would say that you'll learn a lot in MBA school. Don't look at it as a credential. Look at it as something that makes you a better employee, potentially a great manager at a place of work, gives you better skills. And at 57, an MBA's value to you is less than it would be at 47 or 37 because you have less runway 
for that MBA to advance your career over a longer period of time. But you haven't said how long you intend to work and getting that education hopefully will be relevant to you. You will find value in it. And more important, there are employers, even if your own that you're at right now doesn't, there will be employers that find great value that you were an MBA candidate. Sounds like she's a contractor right now when she says individual contributor. Yeah, it was hard to know what she exactly meant by that. I think like independent contractor. But it does, it does give you more market power when you're looking for work that you are showing that initiative. You know, most people, as they get mid-career, the last thing they're thinking about is going and getting in a classroom after they've worked all day. You're showing real drive, and employers are looking for people with real drive. Remember there was that thing for a minute where the hot phrase earlier this year was um, quiet quitting? Mm-hmm. I mean, employers right now have kind of a grudge against their employees. They think their employees are loafing, that their employees are not really invested in the company and its purpose and mission. You're, you're going off to grad school for an MBA they know you're not quiet quitting. You are somebody with drive and ambition. And I think there's value in that. You know, a, a field that's having a lot of problems functioning right now, pharmacies, number of factors, and it means the quality of the customer service you're seeing is going down, 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 and the working conditions for the employees and pharmacies, terrible right now in so many pharmacies. And it's affecting quality and potentially safety of pharmacies. I want to talk about, based on new survey data, where people are actually having the best experiences when they do go to fill a prescription. And it could be a difference in your life or health knowing this. Customer satisfaction at the pharmacy counter at the three giant chains has collapsed according to the latest J.D. Power survey. Terrible, terrible customer satisfaction scores. CVS, the lowest. Rite Aid, right behind them. Walgreens, right there. They're like a pack of um, not the three musketeers. Right now, their customer service quality seems to be the three stooges. And those pharmacists at the big pharmacy chains are under stress like you cannot imagine. CVS is so short-staffed that they're trying to do all kinds of weird stuff to fill prescriptions right now. It was just detailed in the Wall Street Journal with having remote filling of prescriptions where somebody's working one place and the prescriptions are being filled somewhere else. It's really bizarre. And I... I just look at those people in the, I don't go to Rite Aids, but when I'm in a CVS or Walgreens and I look at the people working behind the pharmacy counter, the techs and the pharmacists, and they're there because they care. They're there because they want to serve people. And the stress they're under, it's like they're carrying a load of bricks around on their shoulders Because the number of people going to pharmacy schools has gone down. And this is kind of fed on itself that the labor shortages have led to too much work on the pharmacy staffs. And it's not just a problem at CVS, Rite Aid, and Walgreens. But according to the J.D. Power data, 
much bigger problem with customer satisfaction at those three than it is generally in the marketplace. So I just want you to know who, according to the survey data, is doing a great job. And one thing in particular that stands out, supermarket-based pharmacies are making people much, much, much happier. It's not even close between several of the big supermarket chains, regional supermarket chains, they're all regionals, and the big drugstore chains, CVS, Walgreens, and Rite Aid. So uh, one of them that a lot of people who shop at this regional supermarket adore it anyway, but its pharmacy has the highest satisfaction score of any pharmacy chain in the data that J.D. Power did, H-E-B. Behind them, Wegmans and Publix. Again, all three regional supermarkets, the pharmacy counter is an ancillary thing, auxiliary thing to what they do, but they're doing it well, like the great customer experience people are buying groceries at H-E-B, Wegmans, and Publix. I think that's a significant thing to note because a lot of us might not think of that top of mind of filling prescriptions at supermarket-based pharmacies. Now, who else did very well? In fact, the second highest score of anybody in any category, Sam's Club's Pharmacy. In fact, Sam's Club's Pharmacy got a higher score for the first time, I think, ever than second place, Costco Wholesale. I'm talking about of non-supermarkets, obviously. If we were to mix all of them together, HEB Tops, then Sam's Club, then Wegmans, then Costco, then Publix. So there are places you may not think about where you're going to get really, really good service. Independent pharmacies. You know, it's hard because they're owned individually. They used to dominate pharmacies, and now they are really just hard to find because so many of them have closed because of the ubiquity of the CVS, the Walgreens, and the Rite Aids. But there is a um, like a co-op for independent pharmacies called Good Neighbor Pharmacies, and they scored so much higher than the mega pharmacy chains. It's crazy. Now, a lot of people end up filling their prescriptions at Walgreens, Rite Aid or CVS, particularly Walgreens or CVS, because the prescription plan at work pushes you that direction. That is something that you just need to know that because of the staffing shortages throughout the industry, and I've had pharmacists tell me this, they're not happy pharmacists, but they've told me how important it is for you to check that your prescription is correct because they are expected to fill such a gigantic Organic number of prescriptions per shift, and they're so tired that the possibility of errors is higher than it used to be. So please check those items closely that you're picking up. And as always, if someone from CVS, Walgreens, or Rite Aid would like to have rebuttal about what I've said about you, Krista, we welcome that. How often do we ever have a company say when I've made that offer to go on the podcast? Um, I haven't. 
I don't usually get that. Yeah, we're zero for a zillion podcasts. I do have a friend who worked at one of the chains and forever, and she is a pharmacist, and she recently quit because she really felt like the patients were in danger because she was ex- expected to do vaccinations, fill uh, all these prescriptions, and do so much on her own day after day after day, and she couldn't provide the quality care, and they kept stacking up patients, you know, people for her to do vaccinations on too, and it was, you know very stressful for her. So I hope they figure it out. Uh, This is a question from Alexis in Texas. I had multiple surgeries over the course of a few years and all the letters and payment paperwork became too much to manage. One slipped through the cracks and made its way onto my credit report. I had excellent credit, which then dropped me down to good credit. My brother recommended a credit repair company and told me it only took him a few months for his credit to be fixed. The debt is only $1,700, and I've now paid this company over $800 over the course of six months. The collection is still on my report. I've emailed the gentleman helping me, and he insists he is working on it. I don't want progress to stop now that I'm so far in, but I feel like I'm being scammed at this point. My brother had a great experience. Maybe I just have a difficult credit repair company I'm dealing with. So uh, I'm really sorry that you've been working with this credit repair company. That's not how you handle particularly medical debts. The, the rules have changed on medical debts. And when you are able to pay off this debt, then it will no longer harm you on your credit. The procedures for medical debt changed dramatically. And we're like in the third phase of it, because more than half of all items on people's credit reports that are negative marks are medical. And there are rules that if it's below a certain amount, it never shows on your credit report. They don't show on your report. Was for six months, it's going to one year. Larger amounts, once you've satisfied them, generally those items will no longer affect your credit score or standing. And I want you to check with who the debt is owed to and see if they really show the payments of the money that you have been making. And that's how you'll know if you're in the hands of a thief or maybe possibly a company that's okay. But medical debt should never be handled, never be handled through some kind of credit repair organization. And uh, credit repair organizations, by their very nature, are sketchy. But if you want to find a legitimate one... This is, this is different yeah, than going than a to a real organization, yeah. which is a credit counselor. And the way you'd find a legitimate one is National Foundation for Credit Counseling, nfcc.org. But I would go right back to the source and find out what the status of your bill is at this moment. Okay, this I thought was a timely one for you to answer. Kyle in Arizona, how do I use all the remaining funds I have left on my virtual Visa gift cards? Merchants don't recognize them as gift cards, and if your purchase is larger than the funds on the Visa card, your transaction will be denied. I have three to four cards with various remaining balances and cannot figure out how to use the remaining funds in full, and I don't want to throw them away. So, (laughs) boy, do I love gift cards of all (laughs) kinds. Um, What do I do? Well, it's simple. I have one right now that I got that's in my wallet. But this is a virtual one. Yeah. So, with a virtual one, you do very small purchases till you've emptied it out. If there's something that you need to buy, uh, maybe you're buying it on eBay, you're buying it on Amazon. You don't have to be a Prime member to buy from Amazon. In many cases, you can get free shipping, Uh, Walmart, whatever. There are many ways you can use 
virtual money. If you order something online food for pickup, you can use a virtual card to pay for that and get the money cleared off. I don't like at all the virtual visas or MasterCards, and it's just too hard to use them. I have, as I started to show you, Krista, I have an actual one. And what I do is I've got the same dilemma. You get to the point where you get the decline. When I'm down to a few dollars, I use it for fast food. Mm. Now, many people don't eat bad food like I do. So that would not be an easy alternative. But shopping online for inexpensive items is the best way I know. But you probably never can get it exact. That's the real problem. Like Right. So that's called people. breakage. Yeah. And all the banks laugh at us behind our backs. All the retailers laugh at us behind our backs because they make billions of dollars on what the industry does call breakage. It's reported in their financial reports about how much money they make pretending that they've given somebody money that they've never actually been able to spend easily or at all. Ernie in Florida says, my current Roth 401k provider, Fidelity, is offering active management of my account for a 0.03% monthly fee, but they only have 12 different investment choices. I'm currently using four out of the 12. Is it worth it to pay the fee with limited choices? Plus, would it have helped if I did it prior to the stock market decline we have been experiencing the last two years? So uh, what's called beta is, you know, the rise in the market, the fall in the market, the beta of your investments is what determines how much you would fall during the decline that we've had since the stock market decline began. By the way, there are people who think that the down's done. I think it's a false dawn that we've got a while to go. You're nodding your head. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not the end of the world. You know, declines are a natural part of the process. So if you are in your 401k that Fidelity handles, you are well diversified. And by well diversified, I mean your holdings split up where you own a lot of large company, small company in between, international, you own some bonds, could be in a, a Fidelity target retirement fund, could be you're right now in four individual funds. So you're not just doing target retirement fund. You may already be very well diversified and that fee isn't worth it for you to spend. On the other hand, if you're overwhelmed by how to asset allocate, you could either stop doing four different funds, go all in with the target retirement fund at Fidelity, and they have two flavors. I want you the index version. Or you could pay Fidelity the money to do proper asset allocation based on your age and your expected cycle of work till retirement. So there's not an automatic right or wrong answer to your question. The fee that Fidelity is charging, it's for automated allocation, is a reasonable fee, but it is a drag on what your potential returns could be because it's a fee on top of the fees you're paying for the funds. So if you feel really comfortable with how you're already spreading out your investments and your risk, then keep doing what you're doing. If you don't, then one way or the other, just a straight target retirement fund or pay them for the asset allocation. Either would be a perfectly viable alternative. And I want to thank you so much for listening today. We invite you to sign up for our free daily newsletters at clark.com newsletter.
The idea on our newsletters, as with our websites, is to give you precision advice that's practical information that you can act on and put to work in your life to give yourself more financial security and more financial independence. Check out clark.com slash newsletters or newsletter. They both get you there.